Uh, last week, uh, I was leaving church, and um, one of you uh, pulled me aside and said, uh, hey, I've got to show you this video. And uh, I knew this was going to be a funny one. And um, they showed me that video that, from uh, Saturday Night Live, Matt Damon, Best Christmas Ever. Anybody run across that the last several weeks? Um, and uh, if, if you've not seen it, I, I would highly encourage you to spend two, waste two and a half minutes of your life and die laughing at this. Uh, but what they're trying to do in this sketch is that Matt Damon and his wife are sitting on the couch. The kids are in bed. The candle lights are on. They're having a glass of wine. They're talking about how wonderful their day was. And there's scene after scene of uh, they recall something and they've got these starry eyes and these glowing words uh, to describe that moment. But then it goes to that moment and it's a complete train wreck. So it's like when the in-laws show up, train wreck. Uh, when they're putting together presents in the middle of the night, train wreck. Uh, and uh, the, the wife, the, you know, the, Matt Damon says, you did such a great job hosting everyone. She said, oh, I just had holiday cheer. And they go to her and she's drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. And uh, it's a hilarious video. But I think what it gets at is like that is the reality of Christmas, isn't it? That we have, these, we have these really high expectations on the front end, and even on the back end, when we reflect on it, we don't reflect on it very accurately because we have a hard time putting together the pain and the joy of Christmas at one and the same time. But what doesn't have a hard time putting the pain and joy of Christmas together are the scriptures. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you uh, would help us as uh, we do this hard work of really not just trying to look at this text as uh, only a text, uh, but Lord, really as words from you, personal words, the words that uh, can deeply impact us uh, both uh, this evening uh, and for eternity. Uh, so Lord, I pray that uh, your spirit would come alive tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, but, I mean, think about it. If, if we think about our lives over the last month, we go all the way back to December 4th, we had Winter Song. It was an amazing night. These last few days uh, have been great, haven't they? You've eaten uh, a lot of good food, and uh, you've drank plenty, maybe even too much. And it's really at this point, this is the only time of the year that I really want kale, uh, because I've had everything but kale the last five days. Uh, but we've eaten and drank a lot. We, we've seen gorgeous Christmas decorations. We've seen people that we wish we could see more. Um, and it's been great. And all this is to celebrate the glad tidings of great joy of Jesus. And you go to Luke and you go to Matthew and you see these glad tidings of great joy. You see people worshiping. You see angels visits. You see miracles happening. But you also see something else. You see it in our passage today. You see that Christmas doesn't mean the end of darkness. In Matthew's account, you see violence, you see inconvenience, you see confusion right after Christ's birth. Doesn't that sound like real life to you? Even in our lives, we experience darkness at Christmas. Here's just what I came across my eyeballs this week. These are just kind of news stories. These are impersonal. I can give you personal ones too. This isn't, probably isn't the great best context to give you uh, the personal ones. But let me give you the, the ones I saw on the news. One, one came through my email. Now, one of the pastors in our denomination, uh, his name's Shane Martin. Uh, he pastored a Lebanon Presbyterian Church in Winsboro, South Carolina. Uh, he was killed in a car wreck this week. 47 years old, married, two school-age boys. 
read a story on uh, NPR's website about a six-year-old girl. She was in London, and she's writing Christmas cards to her friends, and she discovers one Christmas card that's already been written in. It says, we are foreign prisoners in Shanghai, Qingpu Prison, China, forced to work against our own will. Please help us and notify a human rights organization. Pretty dark story at Christmas. And I was reading uh, a book. Uh, this talks about a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the 1900s, or the early 18, mid 1800s in London. He pastored a church called Metropolitan Tabernacle. He pastored the church from the age of 19 until he was 57 when he died. At the age of 22, an incident occurred that was tragic and left a mark on him for the rest of his life. It was a big church. It's one of the first mega churches. And in the midst of one of his sermons, when he's 22, someone yells, fire. And everyone, in a panic, trample, runs out. And while they're all running out, seven are dead and 28 are seriously injured. Just awful. Well, this account, what I found out is it happened in November. It happened pretty close to Christmas. I knew this story, but I didn't know when it happened. I didn't know it was close to Christmas. I also didn't know that Spurgeon had only been married for 10 months at this time. And when this happened, he had uh, twin boys, his first kids, and they were only days old when this happened. So can you imagine Spurgeon and his wife in this church trying to celebrate Christmas after this event? How could they sing glad tidings of great joy when they had just experienced such pain and such loss? See, on this side of heaven, this is the reality of Christmas. Moreover, it's the reality of our lives. It's joy mixed with sorrow. And that's what our text reveals to us this evening, the last day of Advent. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw what, that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that they had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So here in this passage, you see Herod's at it again. We saw way back in verse 8, that the Magi were told by Herod that if the Magi were to find Jesus, they were to come back and tell him so that Herod could go and worship him. 
Well, we find out in this passage that that's a hoax. Herod wanted the Magi to tell him where Jesus was so that Herod could murder Jesus. And remember what we learned about Herod a couple weeks ago. He was terribly insecure. He had ascended to the throne of king of the Jews under the Roman Caesar. He did it by making this alliance with Rome. He knew he wasn't the rightful king. He knew he didn't come from the Davidic line. And it was out of his insecurity that he murdered potential threat after potential threat after potential threat to his throne. Some of these potential threats included his favorite wife. He had ten of them. He murdered his potential wife because he saw her as a potential threat. He murdered his two oldest sons because he saw them as potential threats. See, Herod was a savage. And it's no wonder that the news from the angel that Herod was looking for a child scared Joseph so badly because he knew that Herod was a savage. So what Joseph did is he took his gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, the ones he had just received from the Magi, and he ran off with Mary and Jesus down to Egypt. He used these gifts to fund his journey and to fund their life in Egypt. And Egypt was a safe place. It was a safe place for his young family. It's safe because it was outside of Herod's jurisdiction. It's safe because there were estimated to be between one and two million Jews already residing in Egypt. It's safe because it's just 90 miles from Bethlehem to the Egyptian border. But you've got to see this whole situation as far from ideal. Joseph and Mary, they were just settling into their new marriage. They were just settling into being new parents when they've got to leave all that's familiar in Bethlehem. Sure, Egypt might be more safe than Bethlehem, but still. And that's just Mary and Joseph's point of view. Think about what's going on in Bethlehem. Herod finds out that the Magi found the Christ and they didn't go back and tell him, so he gets really angry. He gets so angry that he kills all male babies who are two years of age and under who are in Bethlehem. Before you see this as a huge onslaught of a slaughter, there's 20 to 30 boys here. Small place, Bethlehem was. And some of you who are from small towns, you know the high level of interconnectedness that small towns possess. So it's very likely that Mary and Joseph, they knew all at the most and some at a minimum of all the parents who had these baby boys. Now, we don't know when they found out about the killing of these baby boys. Maybe it was when Mary and Joseph got to Egypt. Maybe it was when they returned home. And you, but you know it, no matter when they found out, these low points had to happen. Where they were thinking, was this my fault? Maybe it would have been better if we just stayed here in Bethlehem and Herod could have got what he wanted so that these babies didn't die. But the suffering's not over for Mary and Joseph. Joseph receives another dream. He receives a dream while he's in Egypt that he's to return home, and, but only kind of. Sure, he's returning home from Egypt, but he's not going to be able to settle in Bethlehem. And the reason he can't do that is because Herod has died, but now Herod's, Herod's province has been divided into three, to his three heirs, three of his sons. And the cruelest of the three heirs is Archelaus, the one mentioned in our passage. And his territory includes Bethlehem. So Mary and Joseph know they can't go back to Bethlehem, so they can't return home. They have to find a new home. Their new home is now 90 miles north of Bethlehem in a town called Nazareth. So it's been a jarring couple of years for Mary and Joseph, right? As it all starts out with being misunderstood, they think 
the people in the town think, oh, they've committed adultery, surely. That's how this child has come to be. But when it was really not that, it was really miraculous conception. Now they're forced to move to Egypt because of an angry tyrant. Then they've got 20 to 30 innocent babies killed because of the birth of their son. And now they're not able to move home. They've got to settle in a brand new place. So let's humanize Mary and Joseph for just a moment. When they get word that they're going to be the parents of the Messiah, you've got to think that they begin to dream about what their life's going to look like. It's going to be full of fame and honor and comfort. Their son's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to be a king like David. They're, going to, they're not going to have a Caesar anymore. They're not going to have a Herod anymore. And now those dreams have come crashing down in the midst of all this difficulty. And now they're experiencing some level of despair. You got to think that when they go to bed at night, they remember the words of Psalm 77. They go to bed, whether it's in Egypt or it's in those early days in Nazareth, and they begin to remember Psalm 77 that line up with their experience. Here's what Psalm 77 says. When I remember God, I moan. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? That's Psalm 77. You would understand why they would pray that, right? You've been in that kind of place before, the place where you say, I'm alone. No one can help me. I have no hope. Things just aren't going to get any better. Are you there tonight? But maybe that's not you. Maybe when pain comes to you, you don't go to that kind of dark place, that kind of place mentioned in Psalm 77. You're more apt to respond to your pain with words like this. I've turned it over to God. God's in control. This isn't what I expected, but he's going to take care of it. See, it's a lot easier to use that kind of language than the language of Psalm 77. We're scared to death to be that kind of honest with God. So what we do is we repress our emotions, we bottle it up, but the problem continues to exist. Our fear continues to fester, and in the end, it ends up alienating us from experienced communion with God. But whether you indulge your despair, whether you repress your despair, you rarely get to see why God allows your suffering. More often than not, when we see our stuff, we don't know how to explain it. We don't know how to comprehend it. So it becomes a double sorrow to us. We don't know how, not only do we experience despair, but our despair makes no sense at all. So here you have Matthew. He's giving us this very realistic view of what life is like when Jesus comes to town. A life that involves fear and pain and loss. But he also gives us some hope. Did you notice that when we read, there's this word that happens three times in this passage, the word fulfill. You see it in verse 15. You see it in verse 17. And you see it in verse 23. And as you read through these 11 verses, you see how God is preserving the life of Jesus through these details. 
But this word fulfills shows us that there's a lot more going on than God just preserving Jesus' life. See, oftentimes when we think of fulfill, we think of predictive prophecy. Prophecies like the one we see in Micah 5, the one that says that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be born in Bethlehem. Or the one you see in Isaiah 7, that Jesus is going to be born to a virgin. That's predictive prophecy. But Matthew, throughout his gospel, he uses this word fulfill in a much broader sense than just predictive prophecy. Because what Matthew is trying to do is he's trying to compare the nation of Israel in the Old Testament with Jesus in the New Testament to show how they're similar. Matthew is painting this bold picture of Jesus because he's trying to draw together the strands of the story of God's people with the strands of the story of Jesus. So let's walk through these three strands that we see in this passage with the word fulfills. Let's look at verse 15. Verse 15, you see that it says, Out of Egypt I call my son. Well, what Matthew just did is that he quoted Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And when Hosea is using this text, he's looking back on the events of the Exodus. He's reflecting back on when Israel had been delivered from their Egyptian enslavement. And so Jesus is now following a pattern. Just as God delivered Israel from Egypt, so has God delivered Jesus from Egypt. Look at verse verse 17. Verse 17 is a use fulfilled. And then we see Matthew in verse 18 quote Jeremiah. He quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Let's read it together. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping a loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. If you've been around the Bible, you know where Rachel come from. She's one of the matriarchs, primary matriarchs of the Jewish faith and of our faith. You can read all about her in Genesis. She's married to a guy named Jacob. He's kind of a schmuck. And when Jeremiah mentions her in Jeremiah 31, great dread has fallen on God's people. They've been conquered by Babylon. Now they're being carted off into exile. It's terrible. So when Jeremiah speaks of Rachel Weeping for descendants is because of what's happened to them. Well, a similar kind of tragedy is occurring now in Jesus' day because these baby boys have been killed. You see, there's been a pattern. Now look at verse 23. Verse 23, it says, He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, the word in the original language of the Old Testament for Nazarene and for branch are very, very similar. And the Messiah is referred to as a branch in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. I'll read it to you. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch or a Nazarene from his roots shall bear fruit. You see a pattern here. So what's Matthew trying to do with these three instances? What he's trying to do is he's trying to jog their memory. So you see, memory for us, it's not just a mental act. It's not just the ability to recall something to mind. The act of memory in the Bible refers to far more. It includes your imagination. It's the borrowing of history as a picture of our current story. So memory is not just mere nostalgia. 
It's this creative borrowing from the past as a template of what we hope for in the present. And Mary and Joseph needed their memory jogged. So did Matthew's original hearers, and so do we tonight. See, God delivered Israel from bondage when things looked really hopeless. They had an army behind them and a sea in front of them. Well, things also looked hopeless for Jesus, didn't they? Jesus is just an infant. He's got parents who have little to no clout. They have little to no resources. And they've got to outwit and overpower Herod and Archelaus. Are you kidding me? But what does God do? God miraculously delivers them. He sends them angels and dreams to show them where they're supposed to go. So if God delivers his people like that in the Exodus, and God delivers his people like that with Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, then God will deliver us too. There's a pattern. Our memories need to be jogged. Think about verse 18. Verse 18, you've got Rachel uh, weeps uh, for the people going into exile. God's people are weeping for the loss of these innocent baby Jewish boys. And now God weeps with us. He's not aloof to your pain. And if God is one who weeps, then he's weeping with you in your despair. We need our memories jogged. And then that last one, verse 23, the one about a Nazarene. It just seems random, doesn't it? There's no quote of uh, quotation there. You Really, Matthew's being very creative. He's being what one commentator said, a little loose with his Old Testament usage here. But he's doing it to be creative with us. It's because why would Jesus grow up in Nazareth? Why wouldn't he grow up in Bethlehem? Why wouldn't he grow up in Jerusalem? But things that seem random to us in God's economy, there's a reason for it. And if there's a reason for everything that happens to us, then we can have hope that God's weaving together a beautiful tapestry in our lives, even when things don't make sense. We need our memories jogged. See, here's the bottom line. There is hope found in despair. There's hope found in despair. And this hope is, an intang- is, is not intangible. We often think hope is intangible. We usually think of it as a concept, maybe even as a feeling. But it's certainly something that we can't see. It's certainly something we can't touch. But hope for a Christian is much more than a feeling or a concept. Hope for a Christian is very tangible. It's a person. His name's Jesus. And that Jesus comes to us in our despair and he waits for us at the end of our despair. Again, let's go back to Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph's despair includes their fear of Herod, includes their loneliness in Egypt, their loneliness in Nazareth, includes their heartache for the death of these innocent children. But they see a pattern. They see a pattern of what they were going through compared with the history of their people. And that's what sustained them. But what's going to sustain me and you in the midst of our despair? 
What's going to sustain us as we mourn our sin? What's going to sustain us as we hurt with the hurting in our world? Well, more likely, you're not going to have an angel come to you in a dream. Hey, to burst your bubble. But even though you don't have an angel come to you in a dream, you have something. You've got a vision that's been given to you. And it's found in the book of Revelation. I read through the book of Revelation for Advent this year, and it had me land in chapter 21 on Christmas Eve. In chapter 1, I, I read these two verses from chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So when you're in darkness, brother and sister, especially the darkness of the Christmas season, know that you're not the first to ever despair at Christmas. Jesus' very parents were despairing while they held Jesus. And even though you won't hold Jesus, even though you likely won't have an angel come to you in a dream. You've got a promise. And you've got a promise that a day is coming where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying, and no more death. So may God give us faith in that day, in this one. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would help us get our heads out of the sand. And Lord, that we would not ignore the pain in our own lives. We would not ignore the pain in our world. And Lord, we would use them as opportunities to cry out to you, to hope in you, and to rely on the vision you've given us of the world that is to come. We pray these things in your name. Amen.